0: Thank you, Blair. I don't know if that feels like Groundhog's Day to you, uh, but I thought I enjoyed preaching through First and Second Timothy so much that I thought we might as well just start over and do it again. I've already prepared the sermons; it'll be easier for me, and and you know maybe we'll pick up on it a little bit more. No, that's not true either. But this is—I've said for two weeks now—this is the last sermon. Uh, in 1st and 2nd Timothy. So this is our third, last, and final sermon on 1st and 2nd Timothy. And you'll see why I I believe it's important that we wrap up this series with this message. Last week we took a look at a summary of both books. If you missed that, I would highly commend that to you. Uh, Go online and listen to it because it, it puts everything together into one package. What we have been preaching and laboring together on for six months. That is going to be the fabric and the very foundation of life together here at South Shore. But I wanted to end this week with this passage right where we started. And I'll say a little bit more about this as we go along, but just to introduce it, there's been so many instructions, 22 in number, over six months, that we could be forgiven if we forgot That undergirding these instructions is the gospel of love. That that all of these instructions are in response to what God has done. And at the very beginning of the series, back in September, at the very beginning of 1 Timothy, Paul was very clear to Timothy, and then likewise to us. The aim, the goal, is not instruction for instruction's sake. Uh, The goal is not truth without love but truth that leads to love. It's not truth that puffs up it's not truth that leads to vain knowledge and and useless discussion and debate and quarreling but all of this works together to show us how God wants us to respond to his initiative of love and he wants us to respond to his initiative of love with love. So everything that we do, we do because we love. We love the God who saved us. We love the God who did what we just spoke of and remembered and commemorated by sharing in the Lord's table. So that's how we're going to wrap up. We're going to remind ourselves that the aim of our charge is love. The the goal of coming together as a church is love. Let's just pray about this and then we'll get into this morning's text a little bit deeper Lord we know that we are prone to wander from the God we love we know that though you've saved us you've justified us declared us to be righteous you've sanctified us given us new birth and a regenerate heart you've made us obedient from the heart you've sealed us with the Holy Spirit And yet, we still have the flesh that wages war against the Spirit. And we are vulnerable to forgetting the gospel, if not in fact, in practice. We are prone to forgetting that the aim of our charge is love. That just as you showed us your love, so you want us to love you and to love one another Oh, Lord, help us to love. Abide in us and help us to abide in you because we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. We know that even if we give our bodies over to be burned, if we move mountains with the depth of faith but have not love, then we are like noisy gongs clanging in the wind. May that not be true of us. God, help us to love. We're too weak but fill us with your love and overflow each of us that your love would be clearly seen and known and felt and acted upon in this place, in this church. And would it be that when people see us and see the way we love one another that they would declare that we are your disciples and they would be drawn to you and if to you, then to us. And I pray that you would add to our number those who are being saved, those who might share in in our love of one another and of you, And Lord, we want to have fellowship with you and with one another. And so our joy may be complete. So I pray, this is is impossible to bring about by natural means, but supernaturally by your Spirit, help us to love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul. Says in verse 3, I urged you. I urged you. I I, I commanded you. I I required it of you, Timothy. I'm going to go to Macedonia and proclaim the gospel there. I want you to stay at Ephesus. And I want you to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation. I want you to stay put. I want you to teach the truth. I want you to make sure that the church is founded on the truth. I want you to make sure that the pillars in the church are of the truth. I don't want to come back to Ephesus and find that you've strayed from the truth. The truth matters to Paul. And the truth ought to matter to us. Doctrine is not optional. Doctrine is the the lifeblood of the church. It's the foundation and the pillar of the church. Without the truth, we are not a church. Without, without the truth, we can't respond to the, to the works that God has done for us. Without the truth, we have, we have no reason for knowing what we ought to be doing. But there is a cold kind of truth, isn't there? There, there is a truth that is, is cold and austere. There is a truth that, that lacks something. It's a truth without love. John wrote that the law came through Moses. The law was true. The law is good. But what do we know about the law? The law kills. The law condemns. Not because there's anything wrong with the law, but there's something wrong with us. The law, the truth, came through Moses. But grace, love came through the Lord Jesus Christ. Along with truth. And so we need to be a people of the truth and we need to be a people of love. The aim of our charge, the the reason that we teach the truth, the reason that the truth is so important to us, the reason that doctrine is not optional in this church is because we care about love. And we want to be a people of love, love that comes from a pure heart. You see, it's the doctrine of regeneration that enables us to love if we don't understand that we've been born again if we don't understand that we're not totally depraved in our hearts if we don't know that that beating inside a saved person is a holy heart we're not going to see love coming out of ourselves if we buy into the lie that we are totally depraved still It's hard to love. But love that flows out of truth recognizes that we've been made new. We are a new creation. We are new creatures. We've been made obedient from the heart. We've been circumcised in the heart. All of these things are are biblical ways of saying that God has given us now the capacity to love. Therefore, do what you are. Be people of love. Live not from your flesh, but from your heart. That's this doctrine producing the ability to love. Love also comes from a good conscience. It is so hard to love if we are burdened down with guilt and shame. Shame. A person burdened with guilt and shame finds it very difficult to love. In fact, a person burdened with guilt and shame does a comparison game and says, I don't think I'm as bad as you, but I'm not as good as you. And so I, I condemn myself because I'm not as good as you, but I pride myself because I'm better than you. That's not love. That's not love at all. That, that is what, the, what we learn later in 1 Timothy. That's called envy, And so we need to learn about the doctrine of justification. What is that? Well, we give Jesus all of our sin and he gives us his position of perfect righteousness so that there is no condemnation for us, that we, in the eyes of God's law, are perfect. From the moment of our salvation until the end of time, we've been justified, declared to be righteous. Therefore, we ought not to carry with us a a load of guilt and a load of shame. There's nothing that I or you can do to make God love us any more. There is nothing that you or I could do to make God love us any less. And there's nothing that we can add to the finished work of Christ with regard to our justification. Now that empowers us to love. If we have been relieved of such a burden, then we can also not burden other people. And we are free now to go out and to extend grace and love and mercy to others, not saying, well, if you don't do this, then I don't know if God is pleased with you if you don't do that. Now, are there things that we ought to do? Yes, but it's the doctrine of justification that empowers us to love, to to not load one another up underneath (laughs) the law of the Old Covenant. But justified people, do you know what we do? We come alongside people who are burdened under the Old Covenant, whether Mosaic Law or any other religion, works-based system, and in love we say, let us lift that off you. Let's take that load off of you. Now that's love. Third thing, we are told sincere faith what paul says here is, is it, it is impossible to love if you don't know the right things about jesus if you're if your faith is not real in other words if you don't have the right facts about Jesus, if you don't know who he is and what he came to do and what he will return to do, and the promises that we talked about around the table, uh, if you don't know about those things, then your faith is not sincere and you'll have some deficiency that will cripple your ability to love. And so we need doctrine, but doctrine is always purposed toward empowering us to love. To love. So our question this morning is this. Was Timothy successful in his charge? I charge you to stay here to teach the the truth. And the goal of this teaching of the truth is love. Did Timothy succeed? Did Timothy accomplish his charge? That's what we're going to look at this morning. You know. We have a lot in common with Ephesus. Ephesus was a, a bustling city. If you look at a map and take away all of the place names and you just rotate it, I think, 180 degrees, it looks like Barrie. It's a group of people around Kempenfeldt Bay. Actually, it was a bay in the Mediterranean. But it looks very much the same. And there was 250,000 people in the greater Ephesian area, which is close to what we are. If you take in Innisfil and Oro Medante, and hey, let's throw Angus in there, Uh, (laughs) Just get us up over 250. Uh, About the same. They were a very uh, cosmopolitan city. They were well educated. And they were spiritual though not faithful to the true God. Uh, Add to that that we are intentionally patterning ourselves after the Ephesian church. So we live in a city that had a lot of similarities to Ephesus. And we are intentionally saying we want to be like the Ephesian church. That's what implementing First and Second Timothy is all about. We want to be these letters. We want to be in a living epistle. We want to implement these the same way that Ephesus was supposed to implement these in the local church there. It would be helpful, therefore, to know what happened to the Ephesian church. What happened 10 years after these letters were written? 20 years, 30 years after these letters were written? Did Timothy succeed in his charge to teach the truth in a way that led the church to love? In order to answer this question, we're going to take a look at, at the four, first 40 years of the life of the Ephesian church. And, and what I want us to, to be thinking about as we're going through this is that we are going to have a lot of similarities. So what will we be like As we approach 2060. Will we follow exactly in the footprints of Ephesus? Will we do better than the Ephesian church did? Will we do worse? But it's helpful to see the the model church. The church that God put forward as our example. Let's just see how they did. And learn from history. So let's do a, a... a timeline. That's going to be the structure of our talk. You have notes in your in your bulletin. You can fill this in as we go along. But the Ephesian church was founded about two decades, give or take, not quite two decades, probably after Jesus had been crucified and He ra- was raised back to life. In A.D. 50, Paul planted the church in Ephesus on his second missionary journey, and he had picked up Prisca and Aquila from Corinth. They had originally come from Rome and they sailed across to Ephesus. Paul stayed a very short time and he left Prisca and Aquila there in Ephesus. You can read about that in Acts 18 verses 18 to 21. The next year sometime a man by the name of Apollos who was born in Alexandria of Egypt and was very well educated. If you know anything about Alexandria you know that it was uh, a university town. So um, Apollos was very well studied especially in the Old Covenant in the Old Testament Scriptures and he came to Ephesus and he began to preach and teach and he had heard some things about Jesus and, and he was an effective preacher that Paul later would commend to different local churches and so very early on you have Paul Prisca and Aquila and then Apollos and you'll remember that Prisca and Aquila pulled Apollos aside. You you did a great job but you missed a couple of really key things he took their, um, their correction and he integrated it into his preaching. So that's within the first year of the church. A year after that, in A.D. 52, Paul came back on his third missionary journey and he stayed for somewhere between two and three years. In Acts 19, 8-10, to we're told that he stayed more than two years. He was three months in the synagogue and then more than two years in the house of Tyrannus. Uh, in Acts 20 verse 3 Paul himself says that he was there for three years so, so a considerable amount of time and, and Paul saw the, Ephes- uh, the Ephesian city and then the church there as highly strategic for all of Asia Minor which is modern day Turkey he said this has got to be our hub and from here we're going to plant churches all over the place in Asia Minor and that's exactly what they did and so that was the mother ship the mother church and then there are all these church plants, church plants, the Laodicea and Hierapolis and uh, Colosse and Pergamum, Smyrna, all these other churches in modern day Turkey come out of the Ephesian church, which tells you why Paul stayed there for three years. In those three years, we had, uh, Paul, Paul had some help. So Apollos came back and spent a considerable amount of time with Paul, probably beefed up his doctrine, his understanding of the gospel, so that he would be fruitful in the ministry for decades to come. Timothy also joined him there, and both these men were dispatched for short errands to different places, and they came back. And we read about this in 1 Corinthians four seventeen and 1 Corinthians 16, 10-12, to 12, Acts 19-22. Then at the end of his three years in A.D. 50, there was a riot stirred up by the Jews who didn't like what was happening. And Paul's life was in danger because of this riot. It was a, it was a big deal. The, church, the, the city was uh, about to rip the church apart. And so Paul left Ephesus... Uh, in order to save his life so he could go and minister in other places. Two years after that, in AD 57, Paul gathered with the Ephesian elders in Miletus. So Miletus, if you remember from uh, two weeks ago, is just about 100 kilometers south of Ephesus, just down on the coast. Um and he met with the elders there. He called for them to come. He didn't go all the way back up to Ephesus, but he called for the elders to come down and he met with them. And, and there's five verses that are, I think, helpful for the context of what we're getting into that I want to read from Acts 20, verses 28 to 32. And so this is what Paul says. This is before he wrote 1 Timothy. This is before Timothy was the pastor there. So he had, these are... Paul's elders that he had put into place. He calls them down and he has a tearful goodbye with them. And what a, part of what he said, take a look there in Acts 20 verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. among all those who are sanctified. Now, we don't really know why Paul had this inclination that there was going to be doctrinal issues in the Ephesian church. On the one hand, it might have been, well, he knew the guys that he put in place. And so he calls them together, and he's thinking about it. He's he's thinking, you know, we've got John, Todd, and Bill, and and whoever else. and, And they're good guys. They're the best we had, but I... I just know that that there's going to be trouble. And if I'm not there to to correct them, uh, if I'm not there in the meeting to to remind them of the gospel, I think there's going to be trouble. That's one option. And I I would imagine that's part of it, at least. He knows these men. He spent three years with these men. He handpicked these men to be elders in the Ephesian church. Additionally, it might have been the Holy Spirit had indicated to him in some way, listen, there's going to be doctrinal issues in Ephesus and, and your whole ministry to Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, will be at risk. If, if the devil could upset the Ephesian church, then he's got the whole province of Asia Minor under his thumb. Whatever the reason was, Paul knew that there was going to be doctrinal issues. And so he gathers them together and he says, look, you got to be careful, guys. Pay attention to yourself and to everyone in the church. You can't get lazy. You can't just coast. You can't just think that you've got it all figured out. You have to stay doctrinally vigilant because there will be wolves who come in And they will not spare the flock. Now this is not about wolves and sheep. This is about people and people. People and people. There will be people who come into the church and they will not spare the people in the church. They will be like wolves running in a herd of sheep or a flock of sheep. So he says, be careful. And then he says, there will be some from among your own selves. So Paul has that tearful goodbye with these elders just south of Ephesus. That's in A.D. 57. Five years after that, Paul is in prison. And he's thinking back to to this church that he loves. As far as we know, he hadn't made it back to see them. But he writes the letter of Ephesians, which we have in our Bible. And and, and you can just see Paul there reminding them of the doctrine. The first three chapters, this is what you have to believe about the gospel. This is what I teach when I was there. How's it going? Are there wolves tearing you apart? Refresh yourself in the truth. And then the last three chapters of that book, and if you believe those things, this is how it ought to impact the way you live your life in the church. That was written in AD 62. The year after Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians in AD 63, he was released from prison and he went on his fourth missionary journey. This is after the book of Acts. So the book of Acts ends uh, in the early 60s when Paul is in prison at the same time that he wrote the book of Ephesians. After that, he was released, and he, he wanted to go to Spain. We're not sure if he made it as far west as Spain, but there are some good reasons to believe that he did. So Paul, in his fourth missionary journey, went as far as Spain. And it's at this time that Paul left Timothy in Ephesus as its pastor. It's at this time that, that he said to Timothy, I'm going to Macedonia, that's to the west, and from Macedonia, his hope was to go to Spain. I'm going west. I want you to stay at Ephesus, because I've known for a lot of years now that that's a vulnerable church, but they're also strategically important. You gotta make sure that they hold to the truth, and remember that the truth is important because it's by the truth that we know how to love. That's the beginning of First and Second Timothy. Year after he goes out to Spain in AD 64, Paul was imprisoned for a second time. This time in Rome. And it's while he's imprisoned in Rome sometime between 64 and 67 that he wrote to Timothy, which we call that letter 2nd Timothy. He says to Timothy, I'm about to die. You've got to keep going with your ministry in Ephesus. Don't quit. I know that you've implemented 1 Timothy. I know that there were problems in that church. I knew that six or seven years ago, and I put you there because I believe in you. I trust that you can keep this church going the right direction. Keep going, endure, make disciples out of those who really care. Preach the word of God. Exercise church discipline. Hold the line, Timothy, because I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. Rome's going to take my head. I'm going to die. And the next generation of the church depends upon the health of that church. Because as goes Ephesus, so goes all of, Ephesus, of the Ephesian church plants in modern day Turkey. In AD 67, Paul was in fact executed. A few years later, The Apostle John comes to Ephesus. This is after pretty much all of the other apostles had been martyred. Now just think about that for a moment. Why did John go to Ephesus? It's not because it had a nicer climate. It's because the Ephesian church was highly strategic and important for the spreading of the gospel. And so the Apostle John settles in to Ephesus, And there are some ancient documents. Irenaeus writes about this in Against Heresies in the third book. Eusebius writes about this in Ecclesiastical History in the third book. Uh, that John lived there for some 20 years. A- and Christian tradition, which is very reliable, early sources say that, you know, who lived with John was the mother of Jesus, Mary. So this is a very high-profile church. John wrote from Ephesus the gospel of John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. I want you to notice John's emphasis in these writings. Let's just take a look at his um, at his letters. So we know in the Gospel of John, uh, John there doesn't really go over all of the history of the life of Christ, but he shows us the theological importance of the life of Christ. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke really get into, well, what happened? What was the teaching? What did Jesus do? John says, I want to take you back to the beginning of creation. And in the beginning was the Word. And then throughout his Gospel, he gives us a theological lens of what Jesus accomplished which is fitting for the locale in which he wrote the letter because this was the doctrinal hub of the church in the first century. And so you have um, the Gospel of John. Now I want you to listen as I read three excerpts, one from 1 John, one from 2 John, and one from 3 John. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 6 to 21, I'm going to read a lot, but I'm not going to expound a lot. I just want you to get a a sense for the feeling of this letter. Starts with doctrine. Then flips over to love. And then weaves doctrine and love, truth and love together throughout this whole passage. That's what I want you to listen for. We are from God. He's talking about uh, himself, the leadership, but then by extension the church. Whoever knows God listens to us. The apostles. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us and by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Do you see that? Spirit of truth, spirit of error. We're from God. Listen to us. We have the truth. If you're not listening to us, you don't have the truth. Truth, truth, truth. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. We are from God and we have the truth. Beloved, let's love one another because love is from God. The truth is from God and love is from God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God. Love and truth. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Truth. In this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is love, but in love is the truth of propitiation. Propitiation that the wrath that we deserve fell to Christ and not to us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. That's true. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, truth, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know And to believe that the love of God is for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You could easily say, whoever fears has not been perfected in truth. Because it's all, fear has to do with the judgment. If you know that you've been justified, if you know that, that you, your sins have been propitiated, truth, you won't fear because truth drives out all fear. But that's not what John says. He says that love casts out all fear. It's the same thing. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. If he says, I love God and hate my brother, I don't have the truth. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. At this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so the letter goes. Now it's interesting to me that at the beginning of 1 Timothy, Paul says, I want you to teach the truth, but remember the goal of this truth teaching is love. And then John takes up residence there some 10, 15 years later. There must have been a problem in the church. Now, this letter isn't just for the Ephesian church, but living in Ephesus in the church, probably its its number one leader, he was the only remaining apostle. He says, I I I believe I must remind the church of the central focus of love. Do we see here the beginnings of a retreat from love? Perhaps. Second John, just a couple of verses. Verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children. That is another church. to, To this other church. Whom I love in truth. This is both right there. Whom I love in truth. Another way of saying that, I love you, this other local church. And John's writing from Ephesus. Because I know the truth. And you know the truth. And so I love you can't separate those two verse four i rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the father starts with truth and now i ask you dear lady lady is just his way of talking to the church i ask you dear church not as though i were writing you a new commandment but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now we're back to truth. There are many out there deceiving, not telling the truth, twisting the truth. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. For John, you couldn't separate. If, if you corrupt the truth, you corrupt love. But if you're walking in the truth, you will have love. Now you might say, okay, we get the point. Well, do we? And if you read 1 John, it's just over and over the same thing. So if nothing else, by repetition, I want you to see how closely entangled these two issues are. And the example is the historical experience of the Ephesian church in 3 John just verse 1 the elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth all of these things were written somewhere between AD 70 and AD 90 to close then There's one more thing we know about the Ephesian church. In A.D. 96, all these dates are not exact, perhaps, but they're close. In the middle of the 90s, of the first century, the Lord Jesus Christ himself wrote a letter to the Ephesian church. Now, do the math. This is just a little more than 40 years after Paul planted the church in A.D. 50. So after being a church and not just any church but the central church in modern day turkey the the hub of all these church plants what does the lord jesus have to say to this church i think we'll be shocked to find that it's exactly the same thing that paul said when he wrote to timothy the first letter it's exactly what john said in first john this is what jesus said revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7 To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you had read chapter 1, all that Jesus is saying is that he holds the churches in his hands. The leaders of the churches in his hands and he walks among the churches. He's present because the Holy Spirit indwells his churches. The golden lampstands stand for the church the seven churches of modern-day Turkey, the Ephesian church and the Ephesian church plants. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Do You see what Jesus commends the Ephesian church for? You are standing in the truth. You hate falsehood. You hate false teaching. You hate any counterfeit gospel and I commend you for that. Verse four. But I do have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. I will come and there will no longer be a church in Ephesus. You know what's sobering is this church no longer exists. At some point in history the Lord Jesus came and removed the lampstand. From the Ephesian church. It's not to say there's not a church in Turkey, but there's no church in Ephesus. Verse 6, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans, we don't know a lot about them, but they were perhaps this um, libertine gnostic movement. Basically, they allowed for sexual promiscuity perhaps, Falling into the era of Balaam. Uh, and they also detached the hope of the gospel from flesh and blood, from, from resurrection, from embodiedness. And Jesus says, I like that you hate them because I also hate what they're teaching. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise. Of God, Now, this is very informative for us because we are patterning ourselves after the Ephesian church. And in their fifth decade as a church, the Lord Jesus Christ writes them a letter and says, I love what you're doing with the truth, except you've lost the love that you had at first. Which is exactly what Paul had warned them about. It's exactly what John had been exhorting them about in their first 40 years as a church. What does it mean that they had abandoned the love that they had at first? Uh, your translation might say you've abandoned your first love, but the, the more wooden translation is you abandoned the love that you once had. At one time, the truth that you held to propelled you into love. Uh, because of the things that you believed, you loved God and you loved one another, but you've abandoned that. You've traded a love, or, or, or sorry, a doctrine, a gospel that leads to love, you've traded that for just cold, hard facts. And I'm not pleased. You know, it's not likely that Jesus will write us a letter in 30 years. But He's written us this letter. If we are trying to aspire to be like the Ephesian Church, and there's much to aspire to, He's written us this letter so in, in in 30 years hence or 35 years from now let's, let's get it close to the same. Will we have abandoned the love that we had at first? Because that's the risk you see. Th- that's where we as a church are vulnerable because we care about the truth. We care about doctrine at this church. So We're going to be vulnerable going forward when it comes to love. And we're going to attract people who care about the truth. And we're going to attract people that love to worship God with their minds. That's that's just who we are as a church. It's who we're going to be. So we have to know the weakness that we have then is love. And I'm saying that not, not really because of us alone, but because that was the same for Ephesus. And we're a lot like the Ephesian church. I want you to notice, though, how much the Lord loved the Ephesian church. Take a look at their first 20 years. For the first 20 years, Paul was very involved in the life of the church. There was Prisca and Aquila. There was Timothy and Apollos. I mean, any church would be overjoyed to have this kind of investment. God sent his best To this church. And then look at the 20 years after that. John is the only apostle that wasn't martyred for his faith. It may have been because God loved the Ephesian church so much. That he allowed John to live almost to 100 years of age. So that he could shepherd this church into its fifth decade of existence. That's amazing. And not only was John there. But John brought the the mother of the Lord Jesus to live with him. How would you like to have been uh, at that church? You know, after service today, we're going to have a luncheon and learn, uh, bring some soup and, a, and some bread, and Mary, the mother of our Lord, is going to talk to us about what he was like as a child. Oh, Jesus loved this church. They had advantages that we don't have. We have the same spirit, and praise God for that. Look at the legacy of writing uh, for this church. Uh, The Ephesian church received five letters that are in the Bible. The Ephesians, uh, the letter to the Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 John. That letter was probably circulated much more broadly. All, All these letters were. But that letter was written in Ephesus. Probably was some of his preaching notes that he then sent out. To other local churches. And then the greatest of them all, a letter from Jesus himself, which has been preserved in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And from Ephesus, four more biblical books were written. 1 Corinthians was written there. When Paul was there for his three years, he wrote 1 Corinthians, sent it across the channel to the church at Corinth. The Gospel of John was written there, 2 John and 3 John. Takes us back to our original question. Did Timothy succeed in his charge? What was the charge? Remain at Ephesus to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The aim of our charge is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Did Timothy succeed? Yes and no. Let's look at yes. Thirty years after Timothy's ministry, Jesus affirms the doctrine of the Ephesian church. I want you to stay put in Ephesus and charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then, and then you read First Timothy, and it's all about. Uh, uh, False doctrine, false teachers, church matters. False doctrine, false teachers, teach the truth. Read the scriptures out loud. Exhort rebuke. Church matters. Don't fall into that which is falsely called knowledge. Then you get into 2 Timothy and you have all this about, you know, you have to preach the truth. You have to exercise church discipline. You have to use the word of God. Remember the scriptures. They're breathed out by God. And 30 years later, Jesus, you, you, you believe the right things. You have the right facts. Timothy, though he was timid and shy and didn't want to take on these false teachers, succeeded to establish a church that was sound in doctrine. Secondly, notice what Jesus also said. Jesus identified a love that they had at first. At first. Which means in the early days of Timothy's ministry, it seems like he took 1 Timothy three uh, one five very seriously. The aim of our charge is love. Uh, at the beginning of Timothy's ministry, he taught the truth in such a way that he equipped the church to love. So it seems that Timothy managed to teach sound doctrine with the aim of love. Timothy did succeed. However, everyone's legacy is tested by time. In some ways, Timothy did not succeed. By the early 70s, John is now the pastor in Ephesus, and he began to identify, we see from his writings, a love deficiency in the church. This is just a decade after Timothy. Two decades after that, even with the ministry of John and Mary and who knows who else, Jesus warned the church that unless they learn how to love again, he will remove their lampstand. And then sometime later in the life of the Ephesian church, the church ceases to exist. Now, I don't know the details of that, and we know that nobody lives in Ephesus now, so did they endure until the end? I don't know. Seems that Timothy wasn't able to secure a love Saturated legacy. So, what's the take home for us? As I said, by making a concerted, overt effort to implement 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, two letters written to the Ephesian church at a critical time, they were not that much older than us as a church when they received those letters. We are modeling ourselves after the Ephesian church, which means we are going to have two goals. Our first goal will be sound doctrine, and we will stand for the truth. We're not going to budge. And and when the pressures come from outside and inside the church to abandon the truth, we will not do it. That's our goal. But you see, if we do not remember that equal to that goal is the goal that everything that we teach about the truth is to cultivate love, then it will be for naught. So we have to remember, remind ourselves that the aim of standing for the truth is not just for the truth's sake. We're not standing for the truth to win debates. We're not standing for the truth to be right. We're standing for the truth because it's the truth and only the truth that truly empowers us to love, which is the goal of the Christian life. And we will be more vulnerable to the second goal than the first. The first goal, perhaps in part because of who you have as your pastor, and flowing out from that the kind of people that we're going to attract into the church, a a vulnerability for us going forward will be forgetting that the goal of of truth is love. So we have to remind ourselves of that. I want us to have a love-saturated legacy in 30, 40, 60, 100 years if the Lord doesn't return. 30 years after Paul wrote the aim of our charge is love, the Lord Jesus wrote, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Where will we be in 30 years? Will we be a church that is known for sound doctrine? I hope so. Will we be a church that is known for our love? I hope so. My prayer is that we will be known for both in equal measure. Let's pray. Lord, we want to stand for the truth because we want the love that is yours to fill us and to overflow us so that we would be a people who love you and love one another. This is, after all, the goal of the Christian life. Please protect us from our vulnerabilities and help us to love as you have first loved us. I pray this in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. family of God together in spirit in life and unity where the bonds of peace of acceptance and love are the fruit of his presence here among us so with one voice we'll sing to the lord and with one heart we'll live out his word till the whole earth sees the redeemer has come for he dwells in the presence of his people good it is on this journey we share to rejoice with the happy and weep with those who mourn for the weak find strength the afflicted find grace when we offer the blessing of belonging so with one voice we'll sing to the Lord, and with one heart we'll live out His word to the whole earth. Sees the Redeemer has come, for He dwells in the presence of His people. good it is to embrace his command, to prefer one another, forgive as he forgives. When we live as one, we all share in the love of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. With one voice we'll sing to the Lord and with one heart we'll live out his word. Till the whole earth sees the Redeemer has come for he dwells in the presence of his people one voice we'll sing to the Lord and with one heart we'll live out his word till the whole earth sees the Redeemer has come for he dwells in the presence of his people.
0: That was the last of the last sermons on 1st and 2nd Timothy, the third last. And next week, we're going to be uh, preparing ourselves for Easter. We're going to spend the whole time between now and Easter and one week after Easter taking a look at 1st Corinthians 15. So could I encourage you to spend the month reading and praying through that chapter? Just immerse yourself in it. Read it at least once a, a week Come ready every week to take a look at that chapter. We'll be going through it uh, somewhat slowly so that we know what is the hope of our resurrection from the dead. Uh, That's what we're going to be doing starting next week. And now I leave you with this. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Go with peace and the love of God. God bless you.